0: Chapter 20 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Sabrina Jane Ainsworth. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 20. Discoveries at Koyunjik during the summer. Description of the sculptures. Capture of cities on a great river pomp of a Syrian king, alabaster pavement, conquest of tribes inhabiting a marsh, their wealth, chambers with sculptures belonging to a new king, description of the sculptures, conquest of the people of Susiana, portrait of the king, his guards and attendants, the city of Shushan, captive prince, musicians, captives put to torture, artistic character of the sculptures, an inclined passage, two small chambers, Colossal figures, more sculptures. Whilst I had been absent in the mountains, the excavations had been continued at Koyunjik, notwithstanding the summer heats. Nearly all the Arabs employed in the spring at Nimrod had been removed to these ruins, and considerable progress had consequently been made in clearing the earth from them. Several chambers discovered before I left Mosul had been emptied, and new rooms with interesting sculptures had been explored. It has been seen that the narrow passage leading out of the southwest corner of the great hall, containing the bar reliefs representing the moving of the winged bulls, turned to the left, and by another gallery connected this part of the edifice with a second hall of even larger proportions than that first discovered. The sculptures panelling the western wall were for the most part still entire. They recorded, as usual, a campaign and a victory and were probably but a portion of one continuous subject carried round the entire hall. The conquered country appeared to have been traversed by a great river, the representation of which took up a third of the bas-relief. Next came the siege and capture of a city standing on the opposite bank of the same great river, and surrounded by a ditch edged with lofty reeds. The Assyrian footmen and cavalry had already crossed this dike, and were closely pressing the besieged who, no longer seeking to defend themselves, were asking for quarter. On the other side of the river, Sennacherib, in his gorgeous war-chariot, and surrounded by his guards, received the captives and the spoil. It is remarkable that this was almost the only figure of the king which had not been wantonly mutilated, probably by those who overthrew the Assyrian Empire, burned its palaces, and levelled its cities with the dust. In this bar relief, The furniture of the horses was particularly rich and elaborate. Above the yoke rose a semicircular ornament, set round with stars, and containing the image of a deity. The chariot of the Assyrian monarch, his retinue, and his attire accurately corresponded with the descriptions given by Xenophon of those of Cyrus when he marched out of his palace in procession, and by Quintus Curtius of those of Darius when he went to battle in the midst of his army. The Greek general had seen the pomp of the Persian kings, and could describe it as an eyewitness. The description of Quintus Curtius is no less illustrative of the Assyrian monuments. The Dorifori, a chosen body of spearmen, preceded the chariot, on either side of which were the effigies of the gods in gold and silver. The yoke was inlaid with the rarest jewels. From it projected two golden figures of Ninus and Bulus, each a cubit in length. The King was distinguished from all those who surrounded him by the magnificence of his robes and by the Sidaris or mitre upon his head by his side walked two hundred of his relations, ten thousand warriors bearing spears whose staffs were of silver and heads of gold, followed the royal chariot. The King's led horses, forty in number, concluded the procession, allowing for a little exaggeration on the part of the historian. And for the conventional numbers used by the assyrian sculptor to represent large bodies of footmen and cavalry we might suppose that quintus curtius had seen the very bar reliefs i am describing so completely did they tally with his description of the appearance and retinue of the persian king the captives bearing skins probably containing water and flour to nourish them during a long and harassing march were feted in pairs and urged onwards by their guards the women were partly on foot and partly with their children on mules, and in the carts drawn by oxen. Mothers were represented, holding the water-skins for their young ones to quench their thirst, whilst in some instances fathers had placed their weary children on their shoulders, for they were marching during the heat of a Mesopotamian summer, as the sculptor had shown by introducing large clusters of dates on the palms. Thus were driven the inhabitants of Samaria through the desert of Halach and Hebor, by the river of Golzan and the city of the Medes, and we may see in these bas-reliefs a picture of the hardships and sufferings to which the captive people of Israel were exposed when their cities fell into the hands of the Assyrian king, and their inhabitants were sent to colonise the distant provinces of his empire. On the south side of the wall, parts of four slabs only had been preserved. The sculpture, upon the others, had been so completely destroyed that even the subject could no longer be ascertained. The fragments still remaining graphically depicted the passage of the river by the great king the bas-reliefs represented very accurately a scene that may be daily witnessed without the royal warrior on the banks of the tigris and euphrates not a fragment of inscription remained to identify the country represented in the bas-reliefs i have just described from the size of the river far exceeding that of any other seen in the sculptures of koyonjik i am inclined to believe that it must have been the combined waters of the euphrates and tigris Now known as the Chatel Arab. On the side of the hall, a centre portal flanked by winged walls and two small entrances, formed by gigantic figures, opened into a long chamber, whose sculptured walls had been burnt to lime. To judge from the fragments that remained of this series of sculptures, the most skilful artist of the day must have been employed in its execution. At both ends of the chamber, doors guarded by colossal figures led into smaller apartments in which the bas-reliefs had been almost entirely destroyed returning to the great hall we found an entrance formed by colossal figures leading into a long narrow chamber about seventy feet by twelve whose walls had partly escaped the general wreck it appeared to be the remains of an entrance into the palace like that on the western face or a gallery leading to the outer terrace which probably surrounded the building on its alabaster panels were sculptured the conquest of some of those tribes which inhabited from the remotest period the vast marshes formed by the euphrates and tigris in chaldea babylonia although the people represented in these bas-reliefs dwelt in the swampy districts of chaldea unless indeed they had only taken refuge in them to escape the vengeance of the assyrian king they appeared to have been as rich if not richer than any others conquered by sennacherib with the exception of three slabs and part of a fourth containing the battle in the marsh the entire walls of the chamber were sculptured with the captives and spoil brought by the victorious troops to their king unfortunately the image of sennacherib himself in his chariot which to judge from a fragment or two found in the rubbish must have exceeded all others in the palace both in size and in the finish and richness of the details had been entirely destroyed returning to the great hall from which this gallery led i found on its western side three other entrances corresponding with those on the southern the centre formed by a pair of winged balls in a fossiliferous limestone they led into a chamber fifty-eight feet by thirty-four panelled with unsculptured slabs of the same material as the colossi at the principal portal three similar doorways opened into a parallel chamber of the same length, though rather narrower. Its walls had been ornamented with carved alabaster slabs, of which a few fragments remained. Three doorways on the western side of this chamber, similar to those on the eastern, led into as many distinct rooms, unconnected with each other. There were thus three magnificent portals, one behind the other, each formed by winged balls, facing the same way, and all looking towards the great hall. The largest colossi, those in front, being above eighteen feet high, and the smallest, those leading into the inner chamber, about twelve. It would be difficult to conceive any interior architectural arrangement more imposing than this triple group of gigantic forms, as seen in perspective by those who stood in the centre of the hall, dimly lighted from above, and harmoniously coloured or overlaid, like the cherubims in the Temple of Solomon, with gold. At the upper or southern ends of the two parallel chambers just described were entrances opening into a room eighty-two feet by twenty-four, whose walls were of the same unsculptured limestone. From it, a portal formed by winged lions in the same material led into an apartment seventy-six feet by twenty-six, standing on the edge of the mound, and consequently one of the last on this side of the palace. Only six slabs, neither of them entire, remained against its walls. The rest had been purposely destroyed, and the fragments used for the foundations of a building raised over the Assyrian ruins. They were covered from top to bottom with small figures, most elaborately carved, and designed with great spirit. Although bearing a general resemblance to the bas-reliefs of Koyunjek, there was sufficient in the style of art and in the details to show that they were not of exactly the same period. Fortunately, several epigraphs still remained over the principal groups and enable us to determine to what monarch the sculptures belong, and to identify the events and incidents they portray. The three slabs to the right of the winged lions on entering were occupied by a highly curious representation of a battle. The subject was incomplete, and could not be restored, and from the number of figures introduced, and the complicated nature of the action, it is difficult to describe these important bas-reliefs intelligibly. Above one of the groups of figures was an epigraph, unfortunately much mutilated, which recorded the slaughter of a king, whose name was question mark, Tiranish, and who, we learn from other inscriptions on the same sculptures, reigned over Elam, or Susiana. The lines being incomplete, the meaning of the whole inscription is not quite clear. Behind the cart with the Assyrian warriors was the tent of the registrar, to which had been led a captive chief and his two attendants. Within were collected a heap of human heads, whilst warriors were bringing more of these bloody trophies to the appointed scribes. Several of the captives were apparently about to undergo some dreadful torture. With their hands manacled in iron fetters, they knelt over an object which might be a chafing dish with hot coals, or a vessel to receive their blood. One of the torturers held his victim by a collar round his neck, whilst a second, seizing the unfortunate prisoner by the hair, was about to strike him with an iron headed mace. The epigraphs declare that the war recorded by these sculptures was undertaken by an Assyrian king, whose image was represented on a slab not yet described, against the people of Elam, or Susiana. It is of considerable importance thus to identify the conquered people, and to be able to ascertain the costume, the arms, and the mode of warfare of a nation well known in ancient history. Amongst the captives, were men clothed in fringed robes and a short under tunic. These were probably the lords of the land. The women wore their hair in curls, falling on their shoulders, and bound above the temples by a band or fillet. Some had one long ringlet on each side of the face. Their children were either naked or clothed in simple shirts. The Assyrian troops were divided into cavalry and foot. The horsemen carried the bow and spear, and wore coats of mail, High greaves and the pointed helmet that characteristic part of the assyrian military costume from the earliest period their horses were covered with clothes and even it would seem with a kind of leather armour reaching from the head to the tail to protect them from the arrows of the enemy the costumes of the footmen as in the bas-reliefs of sennacherib varied according to their arms the archers probably auxiliaries from different tribes in alliance with the assyrians were dressed in very short tunics scarcely covering the thigh a broad belt with the fringed ornament peculiar to the later assyrian period encircled their waist and over their shoulders they wore a cross belt of checkered cloth resembling a scottish plaid to cover their quiver their hair confined by a plain fillet was rolled up behind in one large curl all the spearmen had the pointed helmet but some wore coats of mail and metal greaves, and others a simple tunic, without any covering to their legs. Their shields protected nearly the whole person, and were rounded at the top and straight at the bottom. Some appear to have been faced with small square pieces of leather, others to have been made entirely of metal with embossed edges. For the first time, we see in these bas reliefs, the Assyrians using the battle-axe and the mace in battle. On the opposite side of the line entrance were also three slabs, but better preserved than those I have just described. They formed part of the same subject, which had evidently been carried round the four walls of the chamber. They represented the triumph of the Assyrian king, and, like the battle scenes, were divided by horizontal lines into several bands or friezes. The monarch stood in his chariot, surrounded by his bodyguard. Unfortunately, his face with those of the charioteer and the eunuch bearing the parasol, had been purposely defaced, like that of Sennacherib on his monuments, probably when the united armies of the Medes and Babylonians destroyed the palace. The royal robes were profusely adorned with rosettes and fringes. In front of the chariot were two warriors, or guards, in embroidered robes and greaves. Their long hair was bound by a fillet, whose tasseled ends fell loose behind, They were preceded by two remarkable figures, both eunuchs, and probably intended for portraits of some well-known officers of the royal household. One was old and corpulent, his forehead was high and ample, his nose curved and small, and his chin round and double. The wrinkles of the brow, the shaggy eyebrows, and the bloated cheeks, with the stubble beard peculiar to beings of his class, were very faithfully represented. His short hair was tied with a fillet, His companion was younger, and had not the same marked features. He carried before him a square object, resembling a closed box or book, perhaps a clay tablet containing some decree or register, such as were discovered in the ruins. Both wore long, plain shirts, and round their waists a simple cord, in which was fixed a whip, probably a sign of their office. Above this remarkable group was an inscription in eight lines, fortunately almost entire, from it we learn the name of the king, whose deeds were thus recorded. He was the son of Esharadon, and the grandson of Sennacherib, and the conqueror of Susiana. He was Asordanes of the chronological tables, and his name begins with the monogram for the Assyrian deity, Asher. These bas-reliefs record his conquest of the country of Nuvaki, question mark, a name by which Susiana, or Elimais, was anciently known as we also find from the inscriptions at Kursabad, as well as those of Bisutun. It is highly probable that we have, in the Ba relief, a representation of the city of Susa, or Shusan. Its position between two rivers well agrees with that of existing ruins generally believed to mark its site. The smaller stream would be the Shabor, and the larger the Eleus, or River of Disful. The city was surrounded by a wall, with equidistant towers and gateways. The houses were flat-roofed, and some had one tower or upper chamber, and others two. They had no windows, and their doors were square. Thus, in general form, and probably in the interior arrangements, they closely resembled the common dwellings of the Egyptians, of which a very interesting model is now in the British Museum. Nor were they unlike the meaner houses of the modern town of Shusthe, the representative of ancient Susa. The adjoining slab was divided into eight bands, or friezes, by parallel lines, and the next slab into seven. On both were represented the Assyrian army, returning from its victorious campaign, and bringing to the king the captives and the spoil. The prisoners, who were probably considered rather rebels to his authority than enemies, were being cruelly tortured in his presence. The principal group was that of the eunuch general, or Tartan, leading a chief or prince of the conquered people. Above him was an inscription unfortunately much mutilated. It appears to have declared that he was one of the sons, or chiefs, of the suzianian monarch, defeated and slain in battle near the district of Madaktu, the name of the city on the adjoining slab, and near the city of Shushan, and that the Assyrian king had placed one of his own generals on the conquered throne before the captive prince were gathered a number of susianians probably the subjects of the slaughtered king who had come to surrender to the assyrian general for they still carried their arms and were not led by the victorious warriors some of them knelt some bowed to the ground and others stretched at full length rubbed their heads in the dust all signs of grief and submission still practised in the east the assyrian generals were welcomed by bands of men and women dancing, singing, and playing on instruments of music. Thus, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul, with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. We find from various passages in the Scriptures that the instruments of music chiefly used on such triumphant occasions were the harp, one with ten strings, rendered veal or lyre in some versions, but probably a kind of dulcimer, the table and the pipe—precisely those represented in the bas-reliefs. The whole scene was curiously illustrative of modern Eastern customs. The musicians portrayed in the bas-reliefs were probably of that class of public performers who appear in Turkey and Egypt at marriages, and on other occasions of rejoicing. Above the Assyrian warriors were the captives and their torturers. The former differed in costume from the Susianian fighting-men represented in the adjoining bas-reliefs they were distinguished by the smallness of their stature and by a very marked jewish countenance a sharp hooked nose short bushy beard and long narrow eyes could they have belonged to the hebrew tribes which were carried away from the samaria and jerusalem and placed by shalmaneser sennacherib or hesardon as colonists in the distant regions of elam and who, having become powerful in their new settlements, had revolted against their Assyrian rulers, and were once again subdued? Some, in iron fetters, were being led before the king, for judgment or pardon. Others had been condemned to torture, and were already in the hands of their executioners. Two were stretched naked at full length on the ground, and whilst their limbs were held apart by pegs and cords, they were being flayed alive. Beneath them were other unfortunate victims, undergoing abominable punishments. The brains of one were apparently being beaten out with an iron mace, whilst an officer held him by the beard. A torturer was wrenching the tongue out of the mouth of a second wretch, who had been pinioned to the ground. The bleeding heads of the slain were tied round the necks of the living, who seemed reserved for still more barbarous tortures. Above these groups was a short epigraph, commencing by two determinative signs of proper names, each followed by a blank space, which the sculptor probably left to be filled up with the names of the principal victims it then declares that these men having spoke blasphemies question mark against assur the great god of the assyrians their tongues had been pulled out In both words being almost purely hebrew and that they had afterwards been put to death or tortured the inscription therefore corresponds with the sculpture beneath it is by such confirmatory evidence That the accuracy of the translations of the cuneiform characters may be tested these highly interesting bas-reliefs had been exposed like all the other sculptures of kolyujek to the fire which had destroyed the palace although each slab was cracked into many pieces the sculptures themselves had suffered less injury than any others discovered in the same ruins the hard fossiliferous limestone not having become calcined in the heat like the alabaster the outline was still sharp and the details perfectly preserved. Considerable care was required to move them, but the pieces were at length packed, and since their arrival in England, have been admirably restored. Some bas-reliefs, sculptured by order of the son and successor of Esarhaddon, have been discovered at Koljonjek and Nebionos. These bas-reliefs prove that many changes had taken place in the arts and dress of the people of Assyria between the reign of Sennacherib and that of his grandson. The later sculptures are principally distinguished by their minute finish, the sharpness of the outline, and the very correct delineation of the animals, and especially of the horses. We now approach the period of the fall of the Assyrian Empire, and of the rise of the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia. The arts passed from Assyria to the sister nations, and to Ionia. There is much in the bas-reliefs I have just described to remind us of the early works of the Greeks immediately after the Persian War and to illustrate a remark of the illustrious Eber that a critical history of Greek art would show how late the Greeks commenced to practise the arts. After the Persian War, a new world opens at once, and from that time they advanced with great strides, but everything that was produced before the Persian War, a few of those works are still extant, was, if we judge of it without prejudice, altogether barbarous the chamber containing these sculptures had an entrance opening upon the edge of the mount of this doorway there only remained on each side a block of plain limestone which may however have been the base of a sphinx or other figure the outer walls to which it led had been panelled with the usual alabaster slabs, with bas-reliefs of a campaign in a country already represented in another part of the palace and distinguished by the same deep valley watered by a river the vineyards and wooded mountains Over one of the castles captured and destroyed by the Assyrians was written, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, the city of Bid-Kibbutalmi I took, the spoil I carried away, the city I burned. Whether these walls belonged to a chamber or formed part of the southern face of the palace could not now be determined, as they were on the very brink of the platform. At right angles to them, to the west, a pair of winged balls opened upon another wall, of which there were scarcely any remains, and midway between the two entrances was a deep doorway, flanked on both sides by four colossal mythic figures, amongst which were the fish-god and the deity with the lion's head and eagle's feet. It led to an inclined or ascending passage, nine feet wide in the narrowest part, and ten in the broadest, and forty-four feet in length, to where it turned at right angles to the left. It was paved with hard lime or plaster, about an inch and a half thick. The walls were built of the finest sun-dried blocks, admirably fitted together, and still perfectly preserved. This inclined way probably led to the upper chambers of the palace, or to the galleries, which may have been carried round the principal chambers and halls. I have only to describe two more rooms discovered in this part of the ruins during the summer. They opened into the chamber parallel with that containing the sculptured records of the son of Isahadon the entrances to both were formed by two pairs of colossal figures each pair consisting of a man wearing the horned cap surmounted by a fleur de lis and a lion-headed and eagle-footed human figure raising a dagger in one hand and holding a mace in the other these sculptures were remarkable for the boldness of the relief and their high finish the bas-reliefs on the walls of the two chambers recorded the same campaign against a nation dwelling amidst a wooded and mountainous country and in strongly fortified cities, which the Assyrians took by assault, using battering-rams to make breaches in the walls, and scaling-ladders to mount to the assault. The besieged defended themselves with arrows and stones, but their strongholds were captured, and a vast amount of spoil and captives fell into the hands of the conquerors. The men had short, bushy hair and beards, and wore an inner garment reaching to the knee, an outer cloak of skins or fur, and gaiters laced in front. The robes of the women were short, their hair hung low down their backs, and was then gathered up in one large curl. Such were the discoveries made at Kolyundzik during the summer. At Nimrod the excavations had been almost suspended. I have already described those parts of the high mound or tower, and of the adjoining small temples, which were explored by the few workmen who still remained amongst the ruins, rather to retain possession of the place than to carry on extensive operations. I was engaged until the middle of October in moving and packing bar-reliefs from Koyunjek, a task of considerable trouble, and demanding much time and labour, as the slabs, split into a thousand fragments by the fire, had to be taken completely to pieces, and then arranged and numbers with a view to their future restoration. Nearly a hundred cases, containing these remains, were at length dragged to the riverside, to wait the rafts by which they were to be forwarded to Busra. Where a vessel was shortly expected to transport them to England. End of chapter twenty. Recording by Zeprina Jazz Ainsworth.